This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello, and welcome to a jigsaw edition of Oh God, What Now? Uh, we discussed the Owen Patterson led some amendment situation on Wednesday afternoon, and then amazingly and hilariously, uh, everything changed the following day. So I'll be talking to Ian for an insert later to catch up on what happened. Enjoy the rest of the show. Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. Let's meet this week's panel, which, like a Morrison's chicken, contains non-EU ingredients. <laughs> Roz Taylor is editor of the LSE's COVID-19 blog. Hi, Roz. Hello, Dorian. Roz, some complicated fish news for you. Uh, Lord Frost <laughs> is warning that the UK is actively considering a legal battle with France after France detained one British scallop trawler, fined another, and threatened further measures. Uh, fortunately, the scallop, too, are now free. As we record... <laughs> Emmanuel Macron is due to start talks again on Thursday. Um, how has this become such a flashpoint? I mean, the, the, the licenses of these particular two trawlers seems to have become like a major diplomatic incident. Yeah, it's become such a flashpoint because fish, as ever, is a proxy for sovereignty as far as the UK government is concerned. <laughs> and it's actually not just about these two licenses. It's, it's, about a, it's about 180 fish licenses for French boats that fish within 6 to 12 miles of Britain or Jersey and which the French largely have not received yet and they're a bit angry about that. The economic kind of fallout from this is not very big. It's about 6 million euros to worth about 6 million euros to France annually. So it's not a huge amount. But Britain is trying to claw back what it lost in Brexit negotiations. And France is obviously keen to make sure that it doesn't lose its catch to Britain. And you could understand that, particularly when Emmanuel Macron has a election coming up, re-election coming up potentially next year. Then last week, there was a letter from the French PM, Jean Castex, that was mistranslated a bit, depending. It's all, it's all a bit unclear, but it basically implied that Britain had to pay the price for Brexit um, as far as France was concerned. And it is true that Britain has to pay the price for leaving the single market, but the way in which it was put was considered inflammatory. I think one of the biggest problems is that on a personal level, uh, apparently Macron has really started to dislike Boris Johnson. And he what? thought, I know, he thought he could manipulate him a bit as he tried and failed to do with Donald Trump. But he has failed to do that. And he is now getting increasingly impatient with him. Naomi Smith is chief executive at Besser Britain. Hi, Naomi. Hi, Dorian. Uh, so Jeremy Farrow has stepped down from SAGE, ostensibly to focus on his work as director of the Wellcome Trust. But he did issue a statement saying the COVID-19 crisis is a long way from over with the global situation deeply troubling. And he previously said that he considered resigning in September 2020 over government mishandling of the second wave. 
So should we should we uh, believe him that this is purely uh, about his work at the Wellcome Trust, or do you think there's more to his resignation? Well, if there is more, he hasn't told me. Um, but it, you know, we could take it at face value that uh, he wants to focus on his day job, like he says. But I suppose if I was to guess at an alternative theory, I think what's changed between September 2020 and November 2021 is vaccines. I think it's emboldened the government to now completely ignore science rather than selectively listen to it, as they seem to have been doing for the first year of the pandemic. So maybe he just thought, well, they might be cack-handed and acting late, but at least they're implementing restrictions and they'll they'll need me for the vaccine rollout. And now he might be thinking cases are out of control, they're not doing anything, they're not even pretending to listen to me anymore. So what's the point of me being here? Yes, it doesn't seem like a lot that Sage can do at the moment, or at least any changes that are being brought about. Indeed, indeed. So, you know, I I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was the real motivator behind the resignation. And I thought it was pretty damning how the government in their response didn't even thank him for his service. It was a very sort of perfunctory, clear, uh, you know, moving on kind of statement. There was no there was no uh, contrition or, or thanking him for his efforts, which is a bit unusual. This week, we're joined by journalist, author and veteran environmentalist Paul Hawken. In 2017, he published Drawdown, the most comprehensive plan ever proposed to reverse global warming, which unfortunately was the same year that Donald Trump took the US out of his, the Paris Agreement. The timing for his new book, Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation, is more fortuitous. Uh, Paul Hawken, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you very much. Lovely to be here. So you're in Northern California at the moment, right? Yes, I am. But I'm Cornish by descent. So come on, we talk about scallops and scallops. You know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I should have brought you in on the scallop issue. <laughs> So presumably you've been you've been following uh, COP26 and wondering what you make of it so far. And I suppose perhaps what bar you'd set in, in, in your head, like what your expectations were. I have very low expectations for the blue zone and high expectations for the green zone. Uh, the blue zone is basically 192 countries where uh, representatives of those countries who are employees, let's be clear, they're employed by those countries and they're there to represent the interest of their country, not the interest of some other country or the collective interest. And so that is a combination of incentives or motivations that is guaranteed not to come up with anything that's substantive going forward because it has a 25-year track record of doing exactly that. You know, So it's not that I don't question the sincerity or the import of it in terms of galvanizing people's attention. I think it's fantastic that way. But I don't think anything substantive will come out of it because goals, commitments, pledges and targets are not action. And that's what comes out of uh, COP. This week on the show, we'll ask why the Tories are throwing parliamentary standards under the bus for the sake of Owen Patterson and his friends at Randox. We'll be talking to Paul about his new book. And on the extra bit for Patreon backers, we'll be talking about the psychology of confronting the climate crisis. Before we start, don't forget that our Christmas live show, ho, 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 God, what now, is on Wednesday, 8th of December at Leicester Square Theatre in London. You can join me, Naomi, Alexandreo and Ian Dunt for a gala celebration of another brilliant year for Britain. We'll be looking back at the highs and even higher highs of 2021. <laughs> Tickets are on sale at leicestersquaretheatre.com now. And Patreon people, your ticket discount operates right up till the very last minute. But why wait? Search Patreon Oh God What Now podcast to sign up and back us. And it's leicestersquaretheatre.com for tickets for the live show. We'll see you there. 
First this week, MPs voted 250 to 232 to postpone Tory MP Owen Paterson's 30-day suspension from the Commons pending a new investigation, arguing that last month's standards body investigation into his lobbying activities was flawed. Uh, just a reminder, the body ruled that Paterson, former Secretary of State for the Environment, should be suspended from the Commons for lobbying on behalf of the excitingly named Randox, a clinical diagnostics company with ties to the Tory party, and Lynn's Country Foods, a meat processor and distributor. Sounds like someone from Alan Partridge. Lord Falconer said before the vote that if the Lensom Amendment succeeded, it would be a landmark vote that would bring Parliament into disrepute. And uh, that seems to be what happened. Um, Ros, just briefly as, as an introduction here, um, Patterson was initially found to have repeatedly used his privileged position to benefit Randox and Lynn's Country Foods. What rules did he break? He basically broke the rules on lobbying. So he made 14 approaches to ministers and the Food Standards Agency between 2016 and 2018. And he used his parliamentary offices for business meetings, either 16 or 25 times, depending on how you define a business meeting. Um, he didn't declare his interest as a paid consultant. The only thing to which he's admitted and apologised is using parliamentary notepaper twice in writing letters. Was that the worst thing he did? Arguably not. But in his view, yes. <laughs> And what was the the reasoning behind this amendment and the Save Owen campaign? What what was meant to be the problem with the investigation? Numerous ones. I mean, Patterson's own strongest argument, as far as he's concerned, is that he was reporting a serious wrong when he was raising all these issues. I mean, he was essentially, he believes, acting as a whistleblower. This is an exception you can use in exceptional circumstances. It's not, you can't use it in the broad public interest, but you can use it to justify your intervention, even when you're being paid. But the Standards Commissioner decided that it wasn't justifiable in this case. I mean, he's also bringing in other arguments. He's saying he's brought outside ideas to government that Whitehall didn't know about and the commissioner was biased against him and that the investigation contributed to the suicide of his wife last year. There are numerous things. What it all comes down to is he sees what he was doing or he wants to see what he was doing as flagging an issue to the UK government that really needed fixing and his companies he was being paid by could fix it versus and it's selling something. And as far as he is concerned, he wants us to know he was not selling something. And he believes that the distinction was clear. Naomi, uh, can you explain what was in the Leadsom Amendment? Because I suppose like like the scallops of the House of Commons, Owen Patterson seems to be quite a, a small story that very quickly became a big story. Um, so what did the amendment do? Well, what it was essentially doing <laughs> was what this government is doing all of a piece with, which is trying to row back on any kind of accountability that you would hope is there, whether it's you know rowing back on judicial review or whatever. So what they've tried to do is to say, well, this scrutiny committee is not fit for purpose and we need a new select committee and process in place. And that needs to be Tory dominated, replacing independent experts experts with a majority of Conservative MPs. Now, the SNP has already said it is refusing to participate and it will not sit on that committee. And we're hopeful that, that Labour will too. So it's to open a new appeals committee that can overturn the finding of an independent commissioner whose assessment has already been subject to a 14-member standards committee. But 
no, this one will be much better because it'll be stacked full of conservatives. When you look at those backing the motion, it was like a bingo card of parliamentary sleaze. There were 59 Tory MPs who signed the amendment this morning. Among them, these fine fellows, Ian Duncan Smith failed to register his media appearances to his list of interests. Carl McCartney failed to register a company he was involved with uh, to his list of interests. Richard Drax didn't register his property portfolio. Bob Neal failed to register a letter he sent to a council planning office and Marc Francois, who used House of Commons headed notepaper to write to Michel Barnier as chair of the ERG. So it is, it is, it is few things have made me quite as angry as this uh, and many things have made me very angry uh, over the last couple of years that we've is had it a shame that it's majority. it's not drax who was involved with randox yeah. <laughs> i just think i just think for the full sci-fi villainy effect uh, that exactly. that would be the best i mean what it's all about is demolishing the apparatus of the 1990s um, older listeners will remember the nolan reforms and they were meant to clamp down on tory sleeves for good they want to be sleazy, so they want to tear that up. Um, and there were 550 pages of damning evidence. And Patterson clearly undertook paid advocacy. That is clearly banned. He did it for a long time, undeclared, and then obfuscated on it. Um, and I actually think he got off pretty lightly with the proposed 30-day suspension. Yes, but I, I mean, I suppose we should point out the issue there is if you're suspended for 10 days or more, then it can then trigger that the, means you can be yeah, a trigger, a recall, recall even though he's in a very sort of safe seat. And Patterson was one of the 28 so-called Spartans, ridiculous people, who voted against May's deal uh, three times and also one of only two Conservatives who abstained from supporting Boris Johnson's deal. Is it the Brexiters uh, rallying around one of their own because they love him so much? Or is this just the excuse to make a real sort of seismic change. It's not really about getting him unsuspended. It's about getting rid of this committee. Uh, yeah, I mean, th- th- it is part of this dismantling of democratic processes and the ability to hold those in power to account. You know, you ask, is it is it a kind of a Brexit thing? Well, to speak of Brexiters is to speak of this government. So in a sense, yes. And reports today speak to his popularity among the Conservative MPs. But I think it's a stretch to believe that anyone remaining in that party after the purges has loyal born out of anything other than pure self-interest. I mean, as soon as Boris Johnson doesn't look like he can win elections anymore, he'll be out on his ear. And therefore, I think this is much more the real politique than Brexiteer fraternity. They're doing it because they know he'll, they'll get away with it. They'll get away with it because the voting system is broken. And I could probably see out the rest of this podcast listing examples. Pretty Patel's bullying Dominic Raab on the beach, Matt Hancock, etc. He was only removed, remember, not after blowing absolute billions on a failed track and trace system or letting care home residents die by the thousands. But it was when he went and got caught having an affair that had all the hallmarks of an inside hit job on him with leaked security footage to a Tory-friendly newspaper. So the second someone in, in that party has to walk over an issue of integrity, incompetence, bullying, whatever, the rules are all scuppered. And when any of them is threatened, they circle the wagons, whether that's the prime minister or indeed his corporate shill. Roz Randox was responsible uh, for some faulty tests, which caused the recall of three quarters of a million of them, and was then punished with another £347 million contract by Matt Hancock. Why are MPs allowed to work as lobbyists? That seems a very naive question, but Patterson got £100,000 a year from them. And this is a company that made a lot of money out of COVID. And it's not about, you know, some similarly naive listeners might think it's not about the notepaper and it's not about uh, failing to report a particular call or using your office to host a meeting with the, the man from Randox 
But it's like a sitting MP uh, making more than most people do <laughs> from his side gig as a lobbyist. Yeah, and although this, uh, the basis on which he was, was suspended was not anything to do with COVID, he has he was has since been party to a call between Randox and James Bethel, who was the health minister responsible for coronavirus testing supplies. And as anybody who's been tested in the private sector will know, Randox also plays a big part in that. It has been on the government-approved list of testers for people returning to the UK. It's supplied places like care homes. It's been a licence to print money for Randox. But the wider question of why MPs are allowed to do it, a lot of them say basically they wouldn't be MPs if they didn't. They can't afford to live properly. They can't afford to run, you know, their lives on an MP's salary alone. They will also make the argument routinely that they bring valuable industry expertise and perspectives to uh, what they're doing. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And Patterson, you know, Patterson considers as a North Shropshire MP, he is an expert on the farming community and his, you know, one of his big interests is in bacon and milk and farming and that you know that's something that he can bring to parliament and that's how he is able to justify to himself and to other people the lobbying that he does he also has been earning three times an, an mp's salary as a consultant for these two companies lynn's country farms and randox and that's an awful lot of money well i mean i know that people don't like giving mp's more money But I felt for a long time that I would totally, you know, give MPs a pay rise and then just ban them from side gigs and go, this is the only money you can earn. And we're going to, you know, we're going to raise it, not by that much, not by Lynn's country (laughs) money, but by a certain amount and go, okay, this is the deal. Because I would much rather have that than have people like Patterson sort of coining it in for, for gleaning valuable expertise. Yeah, and I think he would get a different kind of parliamentarian if you had those sorts of rules. Yeah. More money for MPs, but a popular, popular position to stand on. Naomi, finally, your last excuse for a, a rage burst. <laughs> Labour are clearly trying to make this the story of the return to 1990s sleaze. They bring this up. One of my favourite style magazines, uh, sleaze in the 1990s. But... That doesn't seem to be the case with the public. Johnson back to the Leadsom Amendment. The Tories imposed a three-line whip, mm, which was so awkward. I don't check if the three Tory MPs who imposed the original suspension in the first place <laughs> then had to vote to say that it was a, a flawed system. The basic Tories just banking on the fact that whatever the circumstances were in the country that enabled sleaze to be so damaging in the 90s, they're gone now and the people aren't going to care. I think a lot of people will see it as a, you know, those that that remember and are, you know, familiar with what happened in the 90s will make the parallels to 1990s sleaze. But the big difference between then and now is the tribalism and the popularity of Johnson's government compared to majors at at the time when all the sleaze was happening. So I just, I'm not optimistic that it's going to shift the dial. I mean, we've had the Downing Street refurb. We've had the £1 billion property development approved by Genric two weeks before the developer donates to the Tories. And, you know, just look at the Jennifer R. Curie stuff again if you want to feel a bit sick. 
it's a bit like a, a greasy pastry, like Sleaze is baked in with Johnson and those continuing to back him have probably made their peace with it. Um, and, you know, very, very sadly, I don't think this is, is, is going to change that. But yeah, I'm sure YouGov will be doing a snap poll on it and we'll, we'll get the results of that soon enough to see whether it's an issue that's cut through. It was an issue that had cut through when I was canvassing in the two by-elections earlier this year in a way that other things hadn't, but it was more around the corruption about PPE contracts than it was about you know in individuals and then less than 24 hours later it all changed after a furious reaction to the vote the government reversed its plans to overhaul the standards process and owen patterson resigned as an mp saying he now wanted a life outside the cruel world of politics so we've called ian dunton to the podcast for an emergency resignation section Ian, Wednesday was a depressing and enraging day uh, for people who care about parliamentary standards and uh, integrity and so on. And then Thursday uh, was relatively hilarious. What did you make of all this? Were you taken by surprise? Yeah, I think the speed of it, the the speed and the, the depth of the breakdown is quite surprising. I mean, you did sort of get the sense that this can't possibly hold and you could feel the anger rising. Um, last night and sort of this morning. You know, Boris Johnson is quite quick to change when he thinks it's going to make himself unpopular. The only real counterexample to that is the Barnard Castle sort of incident where he stuck firm and did himself real damage. Mm. I don't think he's going to make that mistake again. Um, and so they, they backward. I wasn't expecting the complete collapse in everything that they tried to achieve. Nor, nor was Quasi Quartet. <laughs> nor was Quasi Quartet. He spent the morning out there defending, much like the MPs who voted for it, in the blithe and now I think quite naive assumption that, and that Danny Street might actually back him up. And apparently <laughs> nor was Patterson himself, who found out about this from Laura Kunzberg when he was in the supermarket and realised that he's going to be sacrificed, basically, so the Tories can get themselves out of a spot of bother. But also, I think, and this is like the crucial political part, to try and secure the changes that they want to make to the standards process because of what they think is going to hit them in future for things like the Downing Street refurbishment, for COVID contracts, for all the other various sleazy, corrupt ways that they behave. Right. So what happens to this attempt to reform the standards process? Fuck knows. So um, we had Jacob Rees-Mogg. He stood up in the Commons today and said, oh, I'm very, he said, I, I feel last night's debate has conflated, that's his quote, conflated the individual case with a general concern. Now that is disingenuous to the point of extremity because he himself, when he was presenting the motion, didn't, the motion is basically saying Batson's now going to be suspended for 30 days. He didn't even discuss any of that. He just, just spent the entire time discussing the amendment that had been put forward by Leadsom. So he himself had been extremely active to the point of ignoring the individual case in conflating the two things. He then today stood up and went, oh, we've had a bit of a bother. So we're going to go back and try and come up with a cross-party way of doing this. Now, when we had the debate yesterday, Labour and the SNP have said that they're not going to sit on the committee. And they clearly didn't see that this was a massive vulnerability in the government plan, that if the opposition parties just don't participate, the whole thing collapses in on itself. Nevertheless, they've done that now. And so the Tories are going to have to find a way, presumably by getting rid of the stitched in lock they have by virtue of John Whittingdale sitting as the chairman, that it does whatever the Tories say. They're going to have to allow that the Tories don't get to decide what that committee does. But it does seem that they are going to try and push ahead with those plans. And then the question will fall to Labour, to the SNP, to the Lib Dems, do you want to take part in this? Because ultimately, the thing is, there's actually, despite what some quite august sort of detached 
people are saying, there's really nothing wrong with our current standards process. And you can actually watch the way that it has behaved um, very admirably, actually, I think, over the Patterson incident. It has the commissioner who goes in, who does the initial report, that is then looked at by the Committee on Standards, which is the chair of Chris Bryant, but has three Tory MPs on there. It might even be four, actually. Several lay people. It's a cross-party group. They sometimes overrule the commissioner. Sometimes they don't. That is a de facto appeal process, no matter what, it, no matter how Jacob Rees-Mogg tries to pretend otherwise. And then it goes off to a vote in the House of Commons, which they do not have to accept, as we witnessed last night. So the, the process itself is sound. There's really very... I can't think of a genuine reason why you would want to change it up very much. But nevertheless, the government will press ahead with it. And now opposition parties are going to have to decide whether they want to be involved in it. So can you clarify this? Because obviously, this is billed as a U-turn, which often makes people think that it's as if it never happened. What has been reversed? Which bit has been reversed? And, and which bit is staying if they're still pressing ahead with some kind of reform? Right. So let's break it down. So for the first part, the first thing that's been reversed is that they're getting Owen Patterson out of trouble. So they were then saying, well, look, we're going to bring a motion, you know, and we will vote on whether he gets chucked out for 30 days. The expectation was that he would get chucked out for 30 days and that there would then be triggered sort of a confidence vote and we'd see a by-election. Now he has fallen on his own sword. So that becomes kind of null and void. And we are going to see a by-election in that seat. The second part that's changed is that the original plan was for the Ledson plan was to set up a committee it was going to have eight members, four Tories, four opposition parties, with a chair, John Whittingdale, Tory grandee, who would have the deciding vote. So you basically just say, really, whatever the Tories want to do, that's what's going to happen. Now, Jacob Rees-Mogg hasn't actually said what they're going to replace it with. He just sort of said, right. we're, going to, uh, we're going to have a little think about this and see, see what we can come up with. We don't have any more details than that. But by virtue of him saying that it has to be cross-party, there's an acknowledgement there that you can't have a system where the Tories have the deciding vote, because that was the factor that made it so unpalatable to the Commons, well, at least to opposition MPs yesterday. So that we can conclude, we can at least deduce that much. The rest of it we know nothing about. And by the way, probably neither do they. <laughs> you know, I don't think that they have a secret plan right now. It's just like fucking panic stations, basically. And let's just, you know, we'll just get rid of it and hope that we can survive this. So what went wrong uh, for the Tories? Because the Tories and I think the Nothing Matters school of punditry say, look, they've got this, this massive majority. People out there in the red wall, the only part of Britain that matters, um, <laughs> don't care about this Westminster bubble nonsense. And they can basically do what they want. And of course, that's exactly how they behave, that it seemed outrageous to us. And yet they just press the heads, three line whip, go for it. Um, and then suddenly it's like, oh, no, we didn't realize there'd be this huge backlash. Like, it seems like astonishing. Like, how could you not? How could you be so confident as to have a three line whip? And they'd be so startled that people thought that this was corrupt. that You have to reverse it. What miscalculation was made? You know, every time you tweet something right about, oh, the Tories are dreadful. They've done this thing with sewage or they've done this thing with Brexit, whatever. And someone will reply to you on Twitter going, you know, that meme of Tories plus 10, latest Ipsos Mori, you know, they're invulnerable. Well, the thing is, I mean, lots of people on the sort of liberal left really think that way. And crucially, I think Boris Johnson also thinks that way. I think he thinks he's invulnerable. This government does think that it really can't touch the sides. They've got a grasp. Labour is useless. They can channel culture war whenever they want in this really intuitive, emotive, effortless sort of way, and no one can touch them. The thing is, 
That seems to me the thing that sets them up for a fall. It did it in Barnard Castle. It didn't do it over COVID. It does do it now. And the thing is, because I think people who read a lot of the news can't always just sort of distinguish the things that are going to actually really cause a public upset and the things that can't because we're often really quite upset about all of the stuff that they're doing. But certain key moments that are so glaringly unfair, that are so obviously wrong, will do them damage, especially if it taps into key assumptions that people already have about them. And that is what happened here. You can kind of tell a bit of a bellwether on this, just like with Bonacastle, with the Daily Mail. The Daily Mail is what shows you. No point looking at the sun. I mean, the sun went out of its fucking way on Thursday morning to pretend that nothing had ever happened in Parliament. And there was nowhere to be found on the front page. It won't be the Telegraph, you know, which will do everything, despite the fact that it broke the MP's expenses story and once acted like it was standing up for standards. Now, of course, couldn't give a fuck about any of that because it's got its boy in power. But it's the Mail. Because the Mail, obviously, grotesque reactionary filth that it often pumps out. And yet it has a sense of instinctive fairness. When something... I don't like it, sense of fairness, I don't share it, but it has it. It is genuine and it exists outside of the power politics um, of Westminster. So when they get their back up about something, you get a pretty good sense of, oh, no, hang on a minute. This is one of those things that this is one of those things that people instinctively feel, you know, right in their guts is wrong. And that's pretty much what happened here. We should not take resignation letters at face value. And um, Patterson was just like, I've did nothing wrong and it's a dirty business and I want nothing more to do with it. I plan to devote my time to, to Lynn's Farm Fresh Foods. Why do you think he did resign so so quickly? Do you think there was any pressure on him to do so? Or was it just like the, you know, the humiliation of, of the suspension? I have no idea. I would assume that it was the latter and that he thinks that this process will go on and on and on and on and probably result in a by-election, which we would have a pretty good chance of losing. You know, whereas before he would have had the 30 day suspension. This is all he's doing, by the way. So I don't really feel any sympathy. He'd have had the 30 day suspension. I don't think they would have triggered a by-election. I don't think there would have been the public interest and petition to get to the level required to trigger it. Now there was clearly going to be a by-election and worse, he would now be the face of sleaze because, and this is worth repeating and worth remembering for all of the disinformation that his allies are throwing out there. He is guilty as fucking charge like you read the report it is absolutely comprehensive it is conclusive it was a pattern of behavior it's written down in emails he persistently operated in the name of his clients in order to get rid of competitors in order to increase their market provision while acting like he was doing it in the public interest or for public health which he manifestly was not doing he was guilty and that was it the funny part about this was looking at the government and thinking this is the fucking case you want to attach your attempt to reform the system too. Like you could, I, I could think of at least sort of offhand five or six MPs whose cases were much more mild than what Patterson had done. So really on that basis, I think he just didn't fancy going through the remorseless kind of degrading logic that the next few weeks and months would entail. I, I don't know if you share this. It, it's difficult with the, um, okay, with the wife situation. Because you obviously do feel like a criminal menace. I mean, I get it. And I don't question any of the parts where he says, you know, there's no point, there's no meaning in life and, you know, after she's gone. And and obviously that knocks you, especially when you're spending all day basically just laughing at, at what's happening on Twitter. And then you're like, oh, when you look at the accusation he made towards the commissioner, Kathleen Stone, who did her job absolutely impeccably and in, absolutely fair and square, was that his wife committed suicide because of her investigation. You know, then late, that was him saying that, you know, then we had Jacob Rees-Mogg 
in the Commons yesterday, saying, you know, hasn't he been punished enough? As if, you know, basically using this this woman who's an actual woman with an actual life as a human shield so that he could deliver this really tawdry reform, you know, towards towards the standards process. So you 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 find yourself in this really contorted emotional position where you do obviously genuinely feel very, very sorry for him. But also it has to be said that some of the use of this woman over the last few days has uh, has been extremely dispiriting. Before we go, uh, I want a quick mention for Angela Richardson MP's whirlwind 24 hours where she uh, <laughs> rebelled by abstaining on the amendment, uh, was therefore sacked as Michael Gove's PPS, uh, tweeted how sad she was. And then this morning was reappointed as Michael Gove's PPS and tweeted about how excited she was to be back. <laughs> to face the new challenge. <laughs> yeah. Just just amazing. I hope she enjoyed her time off. Um, but I just wanted to ask finally about this this by-election that, that is, is now going to happen. North Shropshire is remarkable. He had a, a 23,000 vote majority with 63% of the vote. So is there any chance, even with all of this kind of uh, sleaze, that the Tories would lose that seat? Very, very minor chance. I think there was a much bigger chance if he had stayed because you can make mm. him the face of Sleaze, right? But he's gone. Um, this is not a seat that you would expect to fall. Um, and it probably won't. However, if, if one of the parties, Lib Dems or Labour, probably Labour because they're, they're in second place, can just find a proper sort of anti-corruption, anti-Sleaze candidate, a Martin Bell for the 2020s, basically, and just put them forward, maybe even, and I'm, I know I'm dreaming my, my highest and most unlikely dreams here, maybe even to the point that the other party would sort of sit down and go, oh, well, you know, if this is a by-election on corruption, we don't have to run, and just turn it into, you know, a, basically a referendum, a sort of by-election referendum on sleaze and corruption, then, you know, it's not impossible. I mean, we've seen, you know, when you look at Cheshire and Lamersham for the Lib Dems, that was, you're, you're talking not dissimilar sort of levels of what needs to be done. So that is not impossible. It does require, I think, Labour and the Lib Dems to, to work together. And it does require someone, a candidate who can encapsulate and turn it into a referendum on corruption. So whether they'll manage to satisfy those things, I'm not sure. And even if they do, you still probably wouldn't bet that they would achieve it, given how safe that seat is. But it would make it a possibility. Thanks, Ian. Uh, now back to the show. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder.
most of the world's leaders have descended on Glasgow, or Edinburgh if you're Wolf Blitzer, for the 26th Conference of the Parties. Boris Johnson has said he is cautiously optimistic about a deal to keep global temperature rises below 1.5 degrees. C, but researchers at the University of Melbourne put the best case scenario at 1.9 by the end of the century. Naomi, I experienced the unusual sensation of not uh, completely hating a Boris Johnson speech. <laughs> um, although Have you recovered? When, when he's, well, then he sat next to David Attenborough without a mask on and I was kind of, I, I felt normal again. <laughs> what we have, it, we, an outsort of right-wing leader, which, which Americans did not have, do not have with the Republican Party, is somebody who genuinely seems to believe in uh, climate change and doing something about it. What did you make of his scene-setting remarks? Well, look, the, the speech was fine, but he's just not a man who keeps his word. So <laughs> while the speech was all right, um, his refusal to mask up tells us he's the sort of person to be judged on his deeds, not his words. So, I mean, I, 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 yeah, like you, I was sort of maybe pleasantly surprised that it wasn't the total usual, you know, bombastic, bluffy, silly schoolboy act. But, uh, you know, who cares? Well, no, well, what do you think about the way that I do? I do, I do think it matters, you know, and, and, and sort of how he frames the issue. And one of his uh, talents, whether we like it or not, I suppose, is that he seems to be able to get through to voters, uh, as the pesky opinion polls keep showing. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think of the way that he sort of framed the issue? Well, there were some OK sort of, you know, soundbite things that are easy access for the average person around trees and cash. And, you know, we all know what those things are. So I think that was helpful. But, you know, what, what's come since and, and the conference itself, it, I just I just don't know how much that framing was enough to galvanize the world leaders and, and sort of put the, the guilt and the shame and the pressure on them that it needed to. And of course, some of the world leaders aren't even there. So it was fine. But I'm, look, I'm never going to be Johnson's cheerleader. So yeah. What did you like about it? What was the particular framing of it that you liked? I just thought at least there was urgency. Hmm. And I thought some of his sort of normally aggravating, colourful ways of phrasing things, I thought, well, might affect some people. Uh, the You know, his football analogy. Hmm. I don't know. It was just that normally <laughs> I listen to him and I think I don't agree with anything you say. And here I was like, as Paul will know, you know, in, a, in, a, in the US, the right wing party is kind of rammed with climate change deniers. And mm. the previous president just d- didn't really want to think about it at all. So whether just... that's Carrie Simon's uh, yeah. influence or what. Yeah, he says OK words on the environment, but he says sort of many words that he then doesn't stick to. So it just always feels like rhetoric for me coming from him. Well, the pledges made by Brazil and India would make a significant difference if kept. Do you think that they're they're credible, particularly given, I suppose, uh, Bolsonaro's record on the Amazon <laughs> rainforest so far? Because, I mean, the, yeah. the, the Melbourne scientists I mentioned, they said, actually, that this is so, these, these commitments are in theory so important that they Mm. actually kind of bend the curve of their predictions. But it depends if they're kept. So far, it has not been a total flop as a conference. The the predicted flop 26 isn't yet a fair way to describe it. And there was, as you say, good progress on deforestation. I do, again, though, take that with a bit of a pinch of salt because they they pretty much agreed on the same thing in 2014 and there's been little to no movement since then and when you look at the people signing this thing I mean Bolsonaro hates trees I mean he hates trees and the only thing he hates more than trees is the indigenous people living among the trees so we're kind of not celebrating yet and with Modi he's probably not 
you know, bless them, going to be around to keep that promise of 2070. And there's two additional decades of the world's most populous country emitting. And it's it's very difficult for the UK to lecture where we still emit way more per capita than India. Um, and we got rid of our forests around the same time Brazil was founded. And it's also harder for us to lecture when, for purely ideological reasons, the UK is reducing trade with our closest partners in Europe and trying to increase trade with the other side of the planet. The UK Trade and Business Commission last week calculated that replacing the lost trade with the EU could almost double our emissions from shipping. And that's about the equivalent of 44,000 transatlantic flights and would require a forest the size of Northern Ireland to offset it. Ross, how damaging is China and Russia's absence? Joe Biden has said it's a gigantic issue and they just walked away. How do you do that and claim to have any leadership mantle? To which Putin said, just watch me. How big a hole, I suppose, in, in, in what the conference can achieve is their absence? It's a fair question to ask. I mean, obviously, Putin and uh, Xi Jinping were not there. They did send delegations, though, so they are negotiating. They just haven't got their leaders there. Now, that's chiefly because um, Putin has not, you know, Putin is apparently terrified of catching COVID and therefore is doing almost nothing where he, which could risk he catching COVID. He can wrestle COVID. a bear, bear chest. Yeah, I, I know. But you see, <laughs> COVID, COVID doesn't respect bear, bear <laughs> wrestlers. Xi Jinping is dealing with COVID outbreaks in China, which are, for him are a priority. He hasn't left the country since uh, the pandemic began. So it was unlikely he was going to leave for right, this. Right. So the delegations are there and they have made their points about what they, they thought of uh, Biden's intervention. I mean, China in particular just told the US it was time to halt all crude oil exports if it wanted to take the moral high ground on this issue and help developing countries. China likes to portray itself as a champion of developing countries. And pointing out, of course, that, as Naomi pointed out earlier, it is the West that has done most of the polluting historically and we may be trying to cut back now, but the situation that we're in now with the climate is largely because of emissions that were created in the decades and decades ago. And they argue that therefore we should be the ones basically paying for all the action now. That's not how it works, though. Yeah, I know, but it's a it's a strong it's a strong argument for the domestic audience. And of course, when you've got total control of your domestic media, as Xi Jinping and Putin more or less have, there is very little to be gained from not turning up to mm. to things like this. The UK's main focus is net zero, with new measures to make sure big firms and finance companies hit their targets. What are its limitations? It sounds rather uh, appealing. It does. But of course, what it actually means is that you are not stopping burning fossil fuels as soon as you can, because you're trying to offset the carbon that you're emitting now and tackle hope that the technology which will enable you to cut down on emissions further, comes along later. And for countries like Norway and the Gulf states that are really heavily dependent on oil exports and gas exports, that is very, that is crucial. I mean, how do you keep your economy going if you just suddenly stop exporting fossil fuels? You, you know, you're, you're, you're basically done for. The bigger question as well is that once you start thinking about things like offsets, which are coming things like tree planting or carbon removal technologies, a lot of airlines do this where they basically emit tons of CO2, but they formally offset it, is that your actual contribution to the problem becomes quite opaque. And there are loads of 
things that make it uncertain anyway. When you're thinking about electric cars, on the face of it, great idea. But how is the electricity generated? If it's generated using fossil fuels, are they so green after all? If your supply chain is incredibly polluting, but you're quite green yourself, what? how responsible does that make you? Those are some of the problems with net zero. Paul, what's your take on net zero as, as the UK's flagship climate policy? Sounds good. Rhetorically, you know, it's, it's kind of a crutch. Net zero by 2050 means that uh, PPM levels in the, uh, in the atmosphere will be around 450, which is climate chaos. So essentially it's saying by 2050, you know, we're committed to climate chaos. And the fact is that the, the commitments themselves are very dependent, as Roz pointed out, on offsets. The offsets that exist right today, only 5% of them actually sequester carbon. Uh, the other 95% are additionality or protection of existing forest systems, for example. Offsetting a loss is not a gain. This is a really important principle. In other words, I put in a ton, I take it back a ton. We haven't gained a thing as a world. And so only 201 companies so far have committed to net zero. There's 213 million companies in the world. Whoa. So by making these commitments, you may take the moral high ground, but it's a very narrow ground that you're standing on because, as Roz pointed out, you haven't spoken to the supply chain and you haven't really integrated a plan that is encompassing of the totality of carbon emissions. And so, and as Roz pointed out, which uh, I, I couldn't agree more, they're dependent on technologies to come, that is to say, especially countries that are uh, fossil fuel exporters. And those technologies are very questionable in terms of their viability, their economics, or even their workability in terms of their term, their verb, sucking carbon out of the air. And we have to remember that the carbon that's up there came from the earth, and it's actually food for living systems. And the idea to liquefy it and pump it down into geological formations, again, is sort of anathema to me in terms of understanding the dynamics of uh, the biosphere, carbon, the atmosphere, mm. uh, and living systems. You write about how the politics industry might be the most destructive in the world and that we cannot regenerate our climate in a degenerative and dehumanising political climate. And I suppose like one obvious form of that is, uh, is climate change deniers. But presumably there's much more of a problem than that. It's not just, the, it's not just those hardliners. Absolutely. I mean, arguably, the politics industry wrote Boris Johnson's speech. I read it. Right? Did he write it? I don't think so. Did he say it? Good for him. Okay. But the point being is that it is a multi, multi, multi billion dollar industry. It depends on divisiveness. It depends on opposition. It depends on polarization. It thrives on a situation where people are opposing each other, parties are opposing each other, and where we do not come together, we don't listen, we don't bring together, we don't understand, and so forth. So that's why I say it's probably the most destructive industry in the world, because it is the enabling industry of the influence of fossil fuel industry and capitalism as a whole, neoliberal capitalism, on ter in terms of government policy and the foot dragging that we see worldwide with respect to substantive action with respect to global warming. And how did regeneration come to be the core idea of your book? What argument are you making with that idea? It became the core idea because, like all of you, I've been watching the rhetoric for years. I'm a writer. You're a writer. Roz seems like she's a, if not a writer. She's just plain and eloquent. But either way, <laughs> the point is, well, we use language. 
right? Language is very important to us, and we try to express it in a way that is meaningful, accessible, etc. Okay. So when you look at the languaging around, uh, I know languaging is not a verb. Okay. You look at the languaging around climate. What has it been? It's been about fighting, tackling, mitigating, right? Conquering, you know, combating. These male war and sports metaphors have been used to talk about climate as if it wasn't it someplace else that we could fight and combat. And that's not true at all. So what basically is an othering language, okay? Othering is the problem in the world today, you know, with women, with religion, with people, with, I mean, we're, we're, it's redolent with othering language right now. And we're doing the same thing to climate. And that is the mindset that caused the problem, that there was a place we could place like an ocean or the air, our waste, our emissions, our pollution, our problems. And so that's number one. Number two is the, the idea that climate is an it somewhere. It's not an it. And the thing is that we're fighting climate change. The climate is supposed to change. It's beautiful. It's mystical. It's extraordinary. It's a complete expression of the biosphere itself. And so we need climate to change. So climate is not the problem. We're the problem. So nature doesn't make a mistake. We do. And regeneration is really inherent to being a human being. It's inherent to life. And regeneration is the default mode of the earth. And you can look at that and with Isabella Tree's work, you know, in Sussex at the Nippa State, you know, how long it took her and Charlie Burrell within 20 years. Man, the first nesting pair of storks in 600 years in the UK, okay, just like by hands off. And so the fact that the oceans and marine protected areas and obviously on terrestrial systems regenerate quickly when we stop harming them and so forth goes back to who we are because all 30 trillion cells in your body right now are regenerating or you wouldn't be having this conversation. And so regeneration is innate. And to me, as a way of looking at the uh, solutions and the approach to uh, global warming, it has bigger arms, much wider, embracing, engaging ways of looking at action and responsibility and opportunity and possibility. And that's the difference between fighting, tackling climate. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I can't wait to mitigate. No, I mean, come on. So we're using language that absolutely does not incentivize or motivate anybody whatsoever and makes them feel like, well, I hope they do it because I don't know what to do. And that's where we are right now. 98% of humanity is not doing anything about climate, 98%. And you say, well, how do we do that? I'm not blaming the people. I'm saying, how hell and the hell do we do that and mm. create such a dialogue around climate that 98% of people are basically bystanders? And I suppose what a lot of people worry that they are going to have to make um, these sort of huge sacrifices to their own well-being, their own sort of aspirations in order to, um, to, to sort of save the planet. That is obviously something which then leads them to um, denial. In many ways, what's the best? I mean, do you do you believe that that is the trade that that is the trade off? Not at all, not at all. In fact, again, I think you pointed exactly to one of the problems, which is okay. You know, if you do less bad, then you're more good as a human being. You know, which that does not address people's needs and their daily functionality uh, whatsoever. And we, so we haven't spoken to the idea that actually addressing global warming is actually a benefit as opposed to. Uh, a punishment. 
And it's interesting because in Boris Johnson's speech and so forth, one of the things I would have said if I wrote the speech that said, you know, the UK is one of the most efficient developed countries in the world right now. It's just a little over six tons per person. I mean, that's extraordinary. I mean, the United States is almost three times higher. And so really to get to a level on a country basis means like, this is where we want to go. This is our goal. And how we're going to achieve it is to make your houses more secure, to make sure they're warm, make sure that we have living wage jobs for everybody. This is where we're going. And this is what our goal is. And this is how we're going to do it. But he didn't do that. You know, he went with these lofty goals and so forth. And I just feel like, it, again, it separates people say, well, I'm glad he's saying the right things, but how does it affect me? And then when you have a question about how it's going to affect you, you will generally go to fear or a concern or a sense of impending threat. And if you don't answer that, if you don't create a context in which solutions can occur that actually bring people in, engage them and see that they will benefit, their community will benefit, their children will benefit, their, you know, et cetera, now and into the future, then it's going to fail. So it's really about kind of rethinking the whole, the whole frame, the whole message that we, that we give to people. Absolutely. Yeah, and this goes back to language. But it also goes back to specifics because in the website for the book, Regeneration, it is the most complete listing of climate solutions in the world and how to get them done, not just the listing who they are, how to get mm. them done. But really, if you didn't have a climatologist alive and we had no clue as to what was causing extreme weather, and then you look at each one of those solutions, we would want to do them absolutely just for what they are because of the cascading positive benefits they have for people, for place, for the future, for children, for jobs, for water, for health. I mean, I can go right down the checklist. And so we have somehow divorced these two uh, to make it a very anxious moment of crisis, you know, about the future, which is scientifically correct, by the way. I don't question that. But by using that kind of quality of, of, of rhetoric, and uh, we just light up the amygdala in people instead of the neocortex. Mm. As long as we keep doing that, we're going to get disengagement, fear, threat, polarization, and even using that fear and threat as a political weapon, which you see in the United States. Roz, talking of fear, polarization, and so on, this idea of a referendum on net zero has been floated by the editor of The Telegraph, uh, uh, among others, backed by Steve Baker, Nigel Farage, and that lot. Even though it was in the Tory manifesto, therefore has a democratic mandate, uh, does not require a referendum. Mm-hmm. Our friend Peter Gagan at Open Democracy reports that the organisation pushing a referendum, the snappily named car26.org, has ties to Brexiters, defund the BBC and Lawrence Fox's Reclaim Party. And he says the ERG has effectively morphed into the net zero scrutiny group. Could net zero become the new Brexit in British politics? It goes without saying that the referendum would be, any referendum like this would be a hideous distraction, which would probably lead to the same irreconcilable divisions that the Brexit referendum created. So the question is why they want to do that, because it seems so counterintuitive to want to sow so much division. But I think the answer comes back to something we were discussing earlier. It is a ploy by people and organisations that thrive on division and see it as an opportunity for own advancement. And that destructive impulse in modern conservatism just keeps getting reinvented with every crisis that we have. It sees opportunity in a breakdown of trust. And it is 
probably the most toxic element of British politics in a toxic political environment, as we were saying earlier. And uh, as listeners to the podcast will know, I don't take leaving the European Union lightly. But the, the idea of using actual kind of, of trying to sort of stall action on climate change for the purposes of political, it seems so obscene. But is, it's there a, also just, is, there, is there also just something a little more kind of concrete there, such as, you know, it's a fossil pop- fuel money? It's a populist move as well. It's basically saying, you know, this, is, this has a potential to cost ordinary people who can't afford it a lot of money for, for, to, for example, insulate their homes and to buy more expensive cars and all the other things. And it is therefore, and uh, as far as this group is concerned, it is an attack on the living standards of ordinary people. And that is how it will be portrayed. And of course, the way to fight that is to point out that making your home warmer is in the long term better for you because your fuels will be lower. And it is in people's interests, almost always, for example, in air pollution, you know, kills you in the short term, kills you in the long term. Mm. It is very, very often in people's interest to do things. But we have to kind of align people's short term worries and concerns with the interests of the planet. Yes. And and also, I always find it quite useful when people give figures for the long term cost of unchecked climate change. Um, which is, a, you know, that it's not some sort of airy fairy. What about the what about the the sort of trees and endangered species? It's like, well, it it does cost. So it's like you pay now or you pay much more later. Yeah, and I think we got used to that concept almost during the pandemic, where we thought, well, we're going to drop billions on testing and tracing because hopefully that will stop the spread of COVID. Now, in the end, it it didn't do that so well, but we can grasp the idea that if you spend money on something to stop something worse happening, that can be effective. So it just needs a more adroit and a more articulate and a more intelligent politician to make this case. Thank you so much for joining us, Paul Hawken. Uh, Lovely. Thank you both. Thank you all. It was lovely. I actually would like to say, listen, I'm I'm fascinated. uh, You're very welcome to and oh, now, both, both Raz and Naomi. I mean, it just it, I just wish we had something as as eloquent and articulate and uh, relevant here on air. So, I mean, I'm I'm impressed. And thanks so much. As we near the end of the show, it's time to introduce our new feature, Under the Radar, where the panel choose less well-publicised stories that are worth reading or thinking about. We heard about Facebook's uh, metaverse plans last week, which were fairly scary. But uh, this week we heard uh, something else from Microsoft Teams. And many people, of course, I'm sure Naomi may be one of them, spend a lot of time on Teams, whether we like it or not. And it turns out that Teams is taking a step into the metaverse by it's going to let you appear as an avatar in work meetings. So you no longer have to arrange your face in a way that is you know, it will look acceptable you can just take on a character and that will be you now you you know Naomi says hurrah and I can see the appeal in many ways because <laughs> it would be nice not to have to put on the slap before you know and, and blur the screen before doing a zoom but it's a kind of it's a bit insidious I don't like this I don't like the idea of having to appear as an avatar in order to to function as a professional. I find that slightly scary. I hope it does not take off in popularity. I can see that it might do, particularly among women, could be even seen as quite liberating. 
I don't, however, like it. And I think it may have, it may be a bigger story than we expect. Probably not until next year when it comes out, but it will be a bigger story. Who will be the first person to lose their job for having an inappropriate <laughs> sexy avatar? Well, there was that, that US <laughs> lawyer, of course, who, who presented himself as a cat, which was really funny and everyone laughed at them. But you know, it, it won't be quite like that. Naomi, what have you picked up? COP has dominated everything. So I think most news stories have probably been underreported. The Northern Ireland Protocol has continued to rumble on and rhetoric has got increasingly belligerent. But the the story attached to that that I think a lot of people missed is that there was an awful incident in Newtonards on Monday where a bus driver was forced out of his seat at gunpoint and the bus was then torched. And this was later claimed by loyalist paramilitary groups who said they were doing it to mark the DUP's stated deadline for the protocol to be scrapped on the 1st of November. Does this mean that the troubles are starting again? No, but it should do two two things to my mind mm. it should show the government that they're playing with fire excuse the pun on their continued games around the northern ireland protocol and they need to stop using the people of northern ireland as a political football and it should show the dup that stoking division and setting deadlines is genuinely dangerous i think that's the story that a lot of people missed and is a, a concerning one one to keep an eye on uh, and mine is, is a new book about the 2019 election in which john curtis and other uh, election experts found that the Brexit party uh, saved Labour or saved them at least from losing around 25 seats because had they not stood uh, in those seats, because remember the Brexit party said that they they weren't going to stand where there was a Tory MP, but they were going to stand against a sitting Labour MP. And it's calculated that the vote, if they had not stood, would have split about 70-30 Tory Labour and therefore cost Labour around 25 seats. So the idea of going, it would have, it could have been even worse, but thank God for Nigel Farage, is uh, is, is quite a sentence to say out loud. But they, uh, there you go. That's what the data says. That's the show. My thanks to Naomi. Thanks ever so much. To Roz. Thank you. And to our guest, Paul Hawken. Stay tuned for our extra bit for Patreons. You'll hear a quick preview after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. And a thanks to our latest backers. Hello and thanks to Mike C, Barbara Goldsmith, Jamie Clark, Krista Halverson, Simon Fathers, Henry Williams, Damien Dugdale and Paula Nixon. Greetings and thanks from me to Dave Perks, James Collis, iBob1, Bora Dushku, Benjamin Austin, Matilda Morgan, Sean Nubley and Victoria Cousins. And thanks from me to Alex Kennedy, Jim, Sam Tompkins, Kate Spaulding, Jeff Lay, Andrea Arkstrom, Rebecca Fern and Stuart Spencer. Oh God, what now? Was presented by Dorian Linsky with Naomi Smith, Ross Taylor and Ian Dunt. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? is a Podmasters production. Now, for this week's extra bit, we'll be speaking about the sort of psychological and emotional side of the climate crisis. Roz, I recently spoke to the Canadian musician Tamara Lindemann, um, who calls herself The Weather Station, whose brilliant album Ignorance is largely about... Uh, what is known as climate grief. She says it came out of a period where she plunged into learning everything she could about the climate crisis and sort of stopped holding back and ignoring things. Um, And she said that was actually a shattering experience, which kind of, of, you know, messed with her head for, for, for several months. 
how far do you personally, how, can, how far can you go in thinking about this and still sort of... Functioning. Functioning, yeah. <laughs> Not very far, I miss. I admire, I admire people who do enormously. I really do. And that is why I have perhaps more sympathy than a lot of people do with Insulate Britain, because those people have really got realised the scale of the problem and they are acting upon it. Now, they may be doing things that cause huge amounts of short term disruption. And I can you know, imagine some listeners thinking, how can you possibly justify blocking a motorway and blocking ambulances? But they have grasped the scale, the immensity of, of the problem. And I do admire them for that. It's such a fine line between kind of knowing enough to want to act and just despairing of the situation improving. That's what I find really hard to get. And I find it it's a different situations as well. It's 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 quite strange. In 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 a city, when I'm in, you know, the middle of the city, I find it hard to think about climate change. Actually when I'm in a somewhere remote and countryside, somewhere quite wild, I find it hard to conceive of it because mm. the natural world seems so powerful and permanent that I can't imagine that ever changing. You know, the waves continue to roll in. You think how could that ever stop? And that was a trailer for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God What Now every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as two pounds a month. It does help us to keep going. And don't forget our new weekly mini-cast, Oh God, What Else?, out every Monday morning and exclusive to backers. Take care and see you next week. 